Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Do you know the real story of Christmas? Well, on today's program, we revisit Dr. Neufeld's first Christmas series entitled Christmas Unplugged, The Truth Retold. During the week, we'll examine what really happened at Christmas through the account of Matthew, the Jewish tax collector, in his unique gospel. So let's listen now to Dr. Neufeld in this message called The Story of the King. Christmas can be a beautiful and a wonderful time of year. But as I observe the celebration of Christmas in our culture, Christmas has always seemed like a paradox. On the one hand, it's about the birth of Christ, an event that trumpets the turning point of human history and the only legitimate hope for a ruined world. On the other hand, well, Christmas feels like a kind of sentimental, romantic idealism combined with commercialism that has all but lost its meaning. I have what is in my mind a very funny story that illustrates this. A number of years ago, at least so it goes, there were a group of engineers who set out to analyze the story of Santa Claus. They estimated that there were about 2 billion children in the world, but they reduced the number only to those children who came from some kind of Christian lands, and so they got a number of about 378 million children expecting Santa to visit them on Christmas Eve. Since the average household would have 3.5 children, Santa would then have to visit 108 million homes on Christmas Eve. Now, if he cooperated with the rotation of the earth traveling from east to west, and you know that's what Santa would do because, well, he's a very smart guy, but then he'd still have only 31 hours to do his work, meaning that he'd have to visit 967.7 homes per second. Now, assuming that each stop was evenly distributed, he'd have to travel 0.78 miles in between each household. And that would mean with stops and delivering presents and quickly drinking the milk and the cookies set out for him, which, by the way, accounts for his enormous weight problem, Santa would then have to travel 650 miles per second. Now then, the question of the payload of the sleigh was another interesting element these engineers considered. Assuming each child gets a present weighing two pounds, that would mean Santa's sleigh would weigh over 500,000 tons. And that's not counting Santa himself. Remember, no one ever named Santa Slim. And since we know that the average reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds, but of course, these reindeer, I'm assuming that Santa's reindeer are super reindeer, and we know that to be true since they can fly. So we assume that they'd be able to pull 10 times what a normal reindeer can, and that would still mean that Santa needs 360,000 of them, which would increase the payload of the entire operation to about 600,000 tons. Now, 600,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates an enormous air resistance and would heat the reindeer in the same fashion as a spaceship re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. In short, the lead reindeer would instantly burst into flame and create a deafening sonic boom. So you know now why Rudolph's nose is as red as it is. But that's not the only problem these engineers had to consider. As a result of accelerating from a dead stop to 650 miles per second in 0.001 seconds, this would create a G-force so strong that it would pin poor Santa to the back of his sleigh, putting the equivalent of about 4,300,015 pounds onto his chest, meaning that by then Santa would not be thinking about directing the reindeer toward the next house. Instead, he'd be consumed with his own more pressing personal problems. As a result of all this data, 
The engineers concluded that if Santa did indeed exist, by the end of Christmas, he most certainly would not. So much for the Santa story and the the myths surrounding Christmas. Of course, no one wants to hear from the engineers at Christmas. Christmas is supposed to feel like sentimental, romantic idealism in which questions of truth and reality and facts are constantly being pushed aside. The minute the engineers show up and check our myths, our culture wants to boo and tell them, we're not interested in reality. Christmas is about fairy tales and and make-believe. That makes the story of Jesus especially problematic. Because even in the real historical account of the birth of Jesus, well, some of us have allowed sentimental, romantic idealism to get the better of us, in which we depict the shepherds and the wise men all showing up at the same time, and a fairy tale-like barn begins to emerge in our imaginations as the sheep and the ox tap their hooves to the beat of the little drummer boy, as the baby smiles with a radiant glow about his head, and as we all know, no crying he makes. See, I wonder, is it possible to tell the story of the real thing? Can we really tell the Christmas story with all its drama, its intrigue, fear intermingled with this audacious hope? Tell it the way it really is without someone booing and saying, stop wrecking my Christmas. Tell me the sentimental stuff. See, what makes matters even more perplexing is that every Christmas, some television program will say that Christmas really is a pagan celebration with pagan roots and and will then seek to give an alternative view of Jesus, including the the Jesus portrayed in some of the so-called Gnostic Gospels of, of Thomas, of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or even recently discovered Gospel of Judas Iscariot. Each of these so-called secret revelations of Jesus give a decidedly different view of what happened over 2,000 years ago. And that can look like the engineers of our day telling us that the traditional story, I mean, the one we learned in Sunday school, that one actually never really happened, couldn't have happened, for indeed, virgins don't get pregnant and Caesar Augustus never really did call a, a census of the Roman world. She added to that confusion are all the disparate groups that attempt to claim Jesus as their own. For instance, there's the Muslim Jesus, which proclaims him as Issa, the forerunner of Muhammad, who never actually died on a cross and never claimed to be the Son of God. Then there's the Mormon Jesus, who was born as the result of the Holy Spirit having sexual relations with Mary. You know, the Mormon Jesus sounds like the stuff of ancient Greek and Roman polytheistic legend. And then there's the Jesus of liberal Protestant Christianity in which we're told that the most likely scenario is that a Roman soldier had sexual relations with Mary and that the entire story of a virgin birth was simply invented to hide Mary's sexual misadventure. But, say the liberal theologians, this story can still have a story of great hope nonetheless, especially to those single moms who have given birth to children out of wedlock. And then there's the communist Jesus who told us to give all our goods away and reject personal possessions and personal property. And then there's the ever-popular, sentimental, non-judgmental Jesus who simply loves everyone and wants to inspire us to do the same. But let's not forget those who want to do away with Christmas altogether, who argue that even to celebrate Christmas as Christmas is to be non-inclusive, and perhaps we should stop wishing each other a Merry Christmas at this time of year, and we should trade in Christmas for things like winter festivals and the like. I hope you see the problem. Which Jesus are we talking about? And what are we celebrating as we proclaim his birth? And what's the real story? 
or are we left only with competing myths? And therefore, what does this time of the year really mean? And do any of us actually care? See here, I suspect many don't care at all, but they put lights around their houses and they put a tree in the family room and they buy presents and and they wrap them and they open them up on Christmas and invite friends and family over for turkey and and drinks and, and hope like crazy that Uncle Larry doesn't make a scene the way he did last year. So in the midst of Christmas fairy tales and legends and traditions and conflicting accounts and disagreements, do you want the real story? See, I ask this to stir up some sense of genuine intrigue. It should intrigue all of us that in the majority of the world today, we actually set our calendars marking them by the appearance of Jesus in the world. See, everyone agrees that with his coming, the world has never been the same, and that's impressive. Furthermore, I actually think that the real story of Christmas is far more impressive than all the myths like Santa and the elves and the North Pole and the myths around the Gnostic Gospels and so forth. And if we are brave enough and insist on canceling all the sentimentality, like the shepherds and the wise men having to show up at the same time together— and have to have a little drummer boy in the barn, for instance, and allow the intrigue, the murder, the wonder, the hope, and the longing into the real story. I think there's enough to fascinate and completely transform the way anyone celebrates Christmas. So during this week, I want to allow Matthew, the writer of the book of Matthew, to retell for us the real story of Christmas and have no myths whatsoever. Matthew has his own unique way of telling the story, and when we let him, or Luke for that matter, tell the story, our eyes will brim over and we will finally understand what this thing called Christmas is really all about. When you think of Christmas and how it's celebrated, I'm sure many things come to mind. Gifts, lights, treats, parades. In our culture today, Christmas has become a romanticized, even commercialized holiday and has in many respects lost its focus on the birth of Jesus. There are different opinions and perspectives about the conception and birth of Jesus, but what really happened? In a few moments, Dr. Neufeld will return to share more insights into the real story of Jesus' birth through the account of Matthew. Thanks for listening today. You know, it's been said many times before, Jesus is the reason for the season. As Christians, we look forward to celebrating the real meaning of Christmas every year. And at Back to the Bible Canada, it's God's story as revealed in Scripture that we're so passionate about sharing, not only now, but every day of the year. This December, we're asking our friends and listeners to make a special gift towards our year-end ministry goal. It's so critical that we meet this goal by the end of this month, allowing us to continue reaching more Canadians with solid, uncompromised biblical truth. Would you partner with us today? It would make such a difference. Together, let's proclaim God's Word this Christmas and the coming year. Visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425 to make your gift. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Unlike Luke, when Matthew tells the story of Christmas, he doesn't mention the account of a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth or the account of the census of the Roman world. 
he passes by the amazing story of the shepherds visited by angels and the account of an old man named Simeon who waited his entire life for the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to be brought into the Jewish temple. That stuff found in Luke is extremely fascinating and engaging, and it is also a part of the real story. It's a part of the historical narrative, the stuff that really happened, and the events that really changed the world. But instead, Matthew starts in a way that, well, it seems boring, at least to the Western reader. He starts with a lengthy genealogy, and then he tells the account of how Joseph heard that Mary was pregnant, and then to our surprise, there is not one line about the actual birth of Jesus. Instead, Matthew goes right by it and tells about the Magi and King Herod's rage and the murder of the children in Bethlehem, followed by Joseph and Mary and the baby on the run. They become refugees, fleeing for their lives, going to Egypt for safety. In essence, Matthew is the engineer we all didn't want to invite to our Christmas party. He doesn't seem sentimental at all, but what he does, he does extremely well. He tells the story of the rightful king of earth coming to claim his inheritance and retelling that story will make all the difference this Christmas. This may seem shocking to some, but I just can't imagine celebrating Christmas without allowing the engineers into the room. I mean, the kind of people who won't allow legends and sentimentality to hide us from the truth. Let's start here. The problem with those so-called secret gospels like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and so forth is that all of those were written hundreds of years after Christ. They are the stuff of legend. They attempt to recreate the story of Jesus and make him more palatable to the time in which they were written, kind of like what we find happening in our day. Fill Christmas with myths. That was their agenda. But if you want the real story, we're going to let an eyewitness speak to us, and his name is Matthew. Now, if you're in a court of law where there are trial lawyers in which there is a jury and a judge, and they're, they're trying to ascertain the truth about some event, they will not allow hearsay that is what someone heard someone say about something. Instead, a consistent trial will insist on interviewing eyewitnesses only. And that's not enough. A genuine trial will want to establish something about the kind of eyewitness you actually have. What is the eyewitness like? What is his or her character? Are they prone to exaggerate? And where are they coming from? In other words, what is his or her bias? We all know that someone's bias will tell you how they understand what they have seen. I know it's very popular in our day to say we need someone who is unbiased. But here's a little secret. No one is unbiased. If you ever meet someone who claims they're unbiased, I can promise they're hiding something. Everyone has a bias, and the only difference between truthful people and liars is that a truthful person actually tells you what his bias is. So let's be honest about the bias of one eyewitness whose name is Matthew. And when we let Matthew talk, when he gets on the witness stand to tell us about Jesus, he also tells us who he is. In Matthew 10, verse 3, he identifies himself as a tax collector. As well, both Mark and Luke identify Matthew by his other name, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Now, that's not unusual. Most people in that day were identified by more than one name. The name Levi means that Matthew was a Jew who came from the tribe of Levi and therefore by birth was designated to be a scribe and a priest. But he was also a tax collector, and most tax collectors were quite wealthy. 
The Roman authorities in Israel did not collect their own taxes. They were afraid the Jewish population would stone them to death. So they picked Jewish traders who collected taxes on their behalf, and they also allowed each tax collector to set his own wages, adding his wages to the taxes he was collecting. Jewish tax collectors were traders, and they were rich, and that was Matthew. And according to Matthew's own testimony found in Matthew 9, verse 9, he was operating a tax booth located on a major trade highway outside of Capernaum, a little fishing village on the outside of the Sea of Galilee. He was collecting tolls along a major trade route, and one day Jesus walked by his toll and said to him, follow me. Now, that must have been something extraordinary because Matthew left everything and followed Christ. Now, perhaps prior to that event, Matthew had seen Jesus perform miracles or he had engaged in some conversation with Jesus, either directly or with some of his disciples. But whatever it was, when Jesus passed by Matthew on that fateful day, he looked at him and said, follow me. And Matthew quit his lucrative job on the spot and walked out of his tax booth and abandoned his secure future and followed Jesus. And that very evening, Matthew arranged a large banquet in his house, and he invited a large crowd of tax collectors and other sinners to hear Jesus speak. And after that night, Levi or Matthew followed Jesus for about three years. Now, here we get a sense of the man. As a tax collector, he would have been trained in secular scribal techniques. Every tax collector, especially those who operated along trade routes, had to be meticulous note-takers who carefully recorded all the daily events. But as a Levite, here also, he would have been trained in Jewish scribal methods. Now, I mention this because many scholars have argued that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those Gospels cannot have been accurate because they write their biographies decades after the event and seem to base their accounts of Jesus off of some other common document, a document that all three of them shared. But my personal observation is this. Matthew, because of his training, took extensive notes on what he had observed, recorded them in the Aramaic language, the language of Jesus, and that his notes form the basis of the Gospels we now have, which were then translated into Greek. Therefore, the book of Matthew, I think, is more than an eyewitness testimony. I mean, it is that, but it is a meticulous analysis of what Matthew saw and experienced, which he committed to writing as he saw the events happening. Okay, that's who Matthew was, but what was his bias? You'll find that Matthew's not attempting to hide any of that. In the 28 chapters that make up his book, we find no less than 48 quotations from the Old Testament. It's clear from his book that in Jesus, Matthew rediscovered his Jewish heritage. Knowing the Hebrew scriptures as he did, he clearly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Unlike many today who make a radical distinction between the Old and New Testament, in which some of us would even see the New Testament as presenting a different religion from that of the Old, Matthew sees Jesus in completely Jewish terms. Jesus, as he understands him, does indeed bring something new, but he does so fully within the context of historic revelatory Judaism. Jesus is for Matthew the very fulfillment of all that the Old Testament longed for. Jesus completes rather than replaces the 39 books of the Old Testament. Indeed, Matthew records a teaching of Jesus that is found in his book alone. Matthew 13:52 records these words, and he, that is Jesus, he said to them, that is to the 12, 
Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of his house who brings treasure, what is new and what is old. I suspect that when Jesus said those words, he was looking directly at Matthew. And as he did, Matthew understood his own calling. In the life of Jesus, what was old is what was revealed in the Jewish scriptures. And what was new is the additional revelation that Jesus gave and his revolutionary teaching that transformed so many lives and the miracles that he did that proved that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And Matthew, who found in Jesus such a treasure as a scribe, writes an eyewitness account of precisely this, and that's his bias. So to our theme, it's Christmas, and which story do we prefer? The stuff of legends or the testimony of an eyewitness? And what do we want? A real Jewish Messiah? See, if you hang on for this week, we're going to portray Christmas from the pen of a man who not only knew Jesus personally, but who knew exactly what the story of Jesus actually meant and how that story should transform our lives. If we listen carefully to what Matthew said, we're going to find out how we might celebrate Christmas today and how we might view Christmas differently than all those other traditions that get added on. We're taking you to Christmas Unplugged, a Christmas that actually refers to what happened in the first place. Continue to join me through this week as we celebrate who Jesus is through the eyes of a remarkable man by the name of Matthew. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the reality of Christmas. We thank you that we can indeed celebrate that God became a man and dwelt among us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for some of the traditions that we have that truly do give glory to you. But Heavenly Father, at the same time, keep us from those things that keep our eyes from you. Help us to look for Christ and to see him as he truly is so that we might celebrate this time of year as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today, Dr. Neufeld encouraged us to remember the real story of Christmas, to put aside the myths, the legends, the fairy tales, and concentrate on the truth. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will continue our study of Matthew chapter 1, sharing Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Don't miss an opportunity to grow in your faith and have a relaxing and fun vacation at the same time. We're so blessed to be able to offer vacation experiences that both offer refreshment and encouragement to all who take part. That said, coming in less than a year, we're excited about our very first cruise to Alaska happening in 2016. Hosted by Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again, we look forward to a week of sailing together and experiencing one of the most popular destinations in the world. The Alaska Adventure Cruise will take place July 3rd to the 10th, 2016, and it's never too early to register. We'll be joined by Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, along with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and guest award-winning musical artist Amanda Stott. Departing from Vancouver, our itinerary includes visiting such ports as Ketchikan, Icy Strait Point and Juno. Together we'll discover the beauty of Alaska while enjoying fellowship and a time of restoration in God's Word. 
For more information or to register, please visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that the ministry trip is fully funded by those who choose to participate. The number again is 1-800-663-2425.